Chain Africa podcast. My name is Isaac Kujeri and I'm here with another amazing guest who's going to explore his work and his perspective about Africa. We're back again and we have another amazing guest with us. For the next few weeks, we're going to be having young people who are around the world um, who are doing great things representing Africa, both on the continent and outside. And today we have one of such personalities with us. Ahmed Kayode Alabi, and Ahmed is a social entrepreneur, he's an author, he's an SDGs youth champion, he's an educator with 13 years of experience in active citizenship and volunteering, and he has a continent app. So we're going to be speaking with Ahmed and talking about his work. Ahmed, welcome to the Change Africa podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's a pleasure to talk about issues that I'm passionate about, especially when it comes to like youth um, and education activism and empowerment um same with also like talking about africa as well i'm i'm an pan-african pan so i like to talk about africa um so it's nice to to actually speak about that topic basically so a lot of people say that they are pan-africanists um, what do you think pan-africanism and what does that mean for you um, I, I think um, when when we hear the word uh, pan-Africanism, I think it's uh, African countries um, coming together um, to solve issues, um, to solve problems, to put um, Africa in the position where it should be on the continental map, basically. Um, so, I mean, across the globe, I mean, Africa is unique on its own <laughs> and it has its, it has its own like uniqueness, it has its own culture, it has its own origin, it has its own drive. And um, sometimes, uh, because of Westernization, we are losing our culture and we are losing our our, our values. We are losing, you know, our community. Um, so when we hear Pan-Africanism, is that com- community, you know, in Africa? Is that Ubuntu? I am because we are. Is that uh, why would others be sad and I am? I will be happy. And why will I, will I be happy and others are sad? Um, so is that uh, you know um, unification? You know, freedom uh, from external domination, basically, which is happening through neo-colonialism or neo-imperialism uh, which sometimes digital technology or some new uh, forms of like um, um, you know support or aid to the continent is uh, is empowering or is enabling rather um, so again uh, when you hear the word pan-africanism um, it's deeply rooted uh, in the african identity uh, it's deeply rooted in um, uh, in the community that that builds you know where we are coming from you know who we are basically um as an african um so and also our political ideology and many other things you know um so yeah i think there's there's a lot to, to unravel when we we'll talk about uh pan-africanism but i think it's, it's it's more or less like the african identity and culture uh basically and um how we are unique in our own way uh, I, I like the way you put it I like the way like you just you dissect it. Um, and in your journey, one of the things that has been very critical for you is leadership and how you've tried from a very young age to, you know, 
not only showcase the leadership skills that you have, but also create platforms that enable other people to lead. Um, I, I, it clearly shows that leadership is a very important thing to you, especially education amongst other things. What is your mission in life? And like, what is the driving force for you when it comes to the life you're living right now and the impact that you're trying to make? <laughs> interesting question. Very, very interesting question. And uh, I think most times when people ask me this kind of question, uh, I always find it difficult to answer because it could be really broad. Um, I think um, sometimes, um, you know, when people say, Ahmed, why do you do what you do? You know, sometimes I just want to say, I don't know. And um, I want to keep it as short as that. But I think it's driven by my own experience. It's driven by my own journey. Uh, it's driven by the kind of support that I've gotten from others as well. And it's driven by my um, need or my why of wanting to pass in, of wanting to pass that button down, uh, basically to other and pay it forward. Um, so I grew up in a community or uh, called Makoko. Um, if you go on Google or if you go anywhere on YouTube, you type Makoko. Makoko, they call it like Venice of Africa. Some people do, and it's like one of the largest frozen slums on the continent, basically. Um, and, you know, being born and raised in such communities, seeing injustice in my community, seeing people not have access to resources and opportunities, and seeing people not have access to quality education as well. Uh, while I was growing up, uh, my dad sent me to one of, like, the best schools within the community, basically. Um, and, I mean, I was going to that school until things changed for me personally, and, you know, the circumstances changed. I lost my mom, and, you know, my mom, I lost my mom due to, like, you know, poor um, health infrastructure or you know, the lack of health support, basically. And uh, after a while, my dad also became unemployed. He had no job. I had to stop the school where I was going to. I had to change school multiple times. And at the point, I wasn't even going to school at all. Uh, so all of those experiences and, you know, moving from one slum to another slum, having to walk in the streets at time. But, um, you know, the truth is that um, uh, um, I am not glorifying the story, basically. Uh, but what I'm saying is that um, some of this story brought me closer to the problem and challenges that my community were facing at the time. And whenever I'm walking the streets, I saw people who condition, whose condition were worse than mine. You know, I saw people who could not even, you know, have three square meal. Maybe I could have one. Uh, some people could not have at all. Um, so I saw those challenges. I saw those problems. I saw people who I look at as role models, you know, uncles, you know, basically. And I saw them playing street football, nowhere to be found, nowhere to go to. And I knew at that point that I don't want to be that way, you know, I don't want to be this person. And um, there was a program that was organized by a foundation when I was 14. And uh, we attended the program. It was a program for vulnerable children. MTM Foundation ran that program. And I could recall at that program, they said, self-esteem is the way you see yourself and the way you see the world. And the way you undo yourself and the way you undo the world. And right there, I knew, I knew, I, I started seeing myself differently that I could do something, that despite the circumstances, I could change something. And I could recall when I was 15, I started teaching. I left secondary school and I started teaching in a rural school, like a basic rural school in my community. And I mean, that was where the leadership journey started from, you know, teaching, always wanting to contribute. When I got into the university, I joined the Nigerian Red Cross, volunteering, uh, and I would also facilitate free tutorials because I understood that there were students whose... Um, you know, who are less precocious, you know, who are, who are probably quite, um, when it comes to academic, they struggle, but probably it's just the teaching methods, you know, probably they just struggle, you know, because, um, you know, they don't understand. So I find a way for them to understand. So I organized tutorials. So I organized free tutorials for four years throughout my stay at the university. When I was under, when I was in my first year, I was teaching first year students. 
when I was in my second year, I was teaching first and second year students. When I was in my third year, I was teaching first, second, third year students. When I was in my fourth year, I was teaching first, second, third, fourth year students. Um, so um, I think, you know, that was the experience for me, basically. Yeah, so um, again, I was facilitating uh, free tutorials, you know, for students, you know, who are less academic, intelligent, and, you know, I could see, you know, people would like, Normally, they would probably score twenty percent. They're scoring eighty percent in in a that means I mean everybody have the capability to learn, and I, I did a free tutorial throughout my stay in the university. It was for me an opportunity to contribute. So every environment I find myself in, I'm looking at the problems, I'm looking at the challenges, I'm looking at how I can contribute. Despite even me not having a lot, or despite me not having you know more, and as I continue to like help people, I continue to search for platforms to develop myself, to grow myself. To build more knowledge and um i noticed that education gave me that pathway to look for platform education gave me that pathway to assess opportunities and i believe that it could be the same for children who have similar condition as mine or who have had similar circumstances as mine i believe that with education children in unserved and rural communities can change the circumstances they've inherited they can assess opportunities they can assess scholarship like i've done today you know studying one of the best universities in the world and you know have access to opportunities you know um, you know speak you know represent my country in many different ways i believe that with access to education children in rural communities can change their circumstances and not just education complementary educational pathways uh because you're not talking about you know the ability to just read and write you're talking about the ability to solve complex challenges and complex problems that our world are facing today the reason why I'm able to create this platform to help people, to support people, is because I have access to education. They can also create solutions to their own problem. We don't need to wait for external support to create solutions to the problem that we face in our communities. Children and underserved and rural communities can be the solutions to those problems, to those challenges. And that was what led to, like, you know, starting an NGO, you know, when I was, uh, I think it was 2017, and, you know, I, I started an NGO to, um, you know, help children develop those kind of skills. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get to that shortly. But I wanted to talk to you about that journey towards volunteerism. Because, I mean, look at your LinkedIn and you've volunteered a lot. And you've talked about how it is just the essence of knowing that people needed help. But can you tell me into maybe your first volunteering experience? I mean, you've spoken about how you taught other people, but what was your journey to volunteerism been like? And what does it really mean to you to be a volunteer? Especially when people listen to that. I think now, volunteering is maybe becoming a little less popular because everyone wants to work and get money and all of that. But what does it really mean to be part of communities where you're trying to build and not necessarily looking for money, but just really helping people? Yeah, I, I, I think for me, it's, it's, it's natural because in the beginning, I just want to help people. I just want to like, you know, whenever, whenever I know something, I can't keep it to myself. I want to teach, basically. And uh, volunteer offered me that pathway to do that, to contribute to something. Um, and even initially, I didn't know what I was doing was volunteering in the beginning because while I was in secondary school, I attended a boarding house. And uh, I could recall when I was taught about HIV and AIDS back then, I was, you know, I would organize seminars, programs within my school. You know, I would, you know, go into classes to teach. You know, I could recall I would go to, like, teach my junior ones in the classroom, you know, during their prep time because it was a boarding house, so there was a free time we called them prep time. So I will go on and teach, you know. I didn't know what I was doing. And when I was trained about, like, um, so when I went to the camp organized by MTN Foundation, we were trained on HIV and AIDS. We were trained, trained on how to be a peer educator 
and peer advocate. So uh, after that training, I will go on to like you know sensitize people about HIV and AIDS. You know, I'll go to programs. I'll raise up my hand to want to talk, to want to share, and uh, I could recall even organizing the seminar for some students. Then you know, who are like um, who are like going from uh, um, um, high school to the university, and uh, as I then I was fifteen or sixteen, and I could recall organizing free tutorials in my community. You know, to teach basic literacy and numeracy skills. So it was just me wanting to like. I see a challenge. I see a problem. I'm looking for like what are the little things that I want to do. You know, to teach people, to teach students, to you know, <laughs> I've done the most ridiculous things. Like I would cut bamboo. You know, I would cut bamboo. You know, trees. You know, with my some of my younger brothers would you know to just create a center or a system where people can learn or you know, they can learn from. So you know, we just do so many ridiculous things. But I was learning. I was building experiences. I was building my leadership capacity. Uh, the truth is that for every volunteering opportunity that I've gotten, there were auditions. And sometimes those auditions allows you to build some certain skills that will be useful for you today. For example, public speaking, you know, it doesn't just happen within a day that you start speaking in public. It's a process. It's a journey. Uh, so for me, you know, just talking to people, it was a journey. Just mobilizing resources, it was a journey. But just that I don't know what those names are. I don't know what they call them until now that I have knowledge, right? So uh, I was mobilizing resources. I don't know that these are the things. And that's what volunteering does to you. Sometimes volunteering can fast track your career growth. It can take you from here to there because you already have a hands-on experience, a field experience, basically. Um, and that's what volunteering does to, to you. So for, for me, um, moving from those, you know, stages, and when I got to the university as well, I'm like, I wanted to, you know, I joined the university association to facilitate free tutorials. And I was doing it without money. But the truth is that you're building network, you know, you're creating this what we call emotional bank account. And I think when we're approaching volunteering, we should approach it as like, you know, when you're a normal bank account, you deposit money. In an emotional bank account, you deposit trust. And when you build a lot of trust, it's easy for you to withdraw. Because you've had a lot of trust, a lot of trust. So people would be willing to give their blood and sweat to you. Whenever you need them, um, so I, that's a beautiful analogy. Yeah, so so I, I mean, I wrote this in my book because I in my second book I have this in my second book where I talk about the emotional bank account. And could you believe that one of the people I facilitated free tutorials for when I was in when they were in hundred level and I was in when they were in their first year and I was in my fourth year of the university, they were the one that built my organizational website for free. And came aboard as, as and came aboard as the director of technology when we were setting our NGO. He, this is a person I taught in 2015 or 2014, and then came aboard in 2017, 2018. Years later, and you know, did the website for free, helps us with like some support, some technological support, helps even facilitate some digital technological training for children in rural communities. So yeah. I've deposited in the person's emotional bank account. Even my own personal website, the person you know designed it for free. At the point, the person who designed a free app for me for some of the stories and codes that I shared, I wanted to give me give it to me as a surprise, but then it crashed, basically. You know, when, later when I saw it, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. But because I've deposited trust, it's easy for me to withdraw. It's easy for you to receive when you've deposited trust. So most times, uh, people see that, oh, I'm not collecting anything. But the truth is that you're building some very strong um, network and you're building an opportunity to receive. 
because in the future you will probably see the gain not in terms of skills but in terms of the people in terms of like connection in terms of like your goodwill those things later bring money but they are currency that will not show immediately um so again all of those um you know experiences you know i was with the red cross i joined the red cross volunteering with the red cross i would be at the school park i could recall the good even played a great role for my younger brother because my younger brother attended the same university as, as me so people thought i was the one you know, so there was a time he went to the school park because i was always at the school park to monitor people to help people during traffic you know when they are traffic i'll monitor people i'll stay there until night sometimes i go home like midnight basically supporting students you know at the school park so my younger brother was at the school park that day and somebody said oh this is ahmed you know he said no 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 i'm his brother oh you're his brother oh go in go in he didn't even have to pay and he went to the bus they took him away like even gave him special treatment i didn't know those people <laughs> so sometimes it creates a kind of goodwill you know things that money would not be able to buy some kind of currency um, and in the future, you know, you, you notice that uh, the job you do when you're not getting paid would pay you later uh, because you've gotten the skills, you've gotten, you know, the experiences, you know, you're going into interview, you're not going interview to interview as like somebody who doesn't know anything. You're going into interviews with stories, with like skills, with challenges, because if you don't do anything, you won't have a story to tell. It's as simple as that. And volunteering gives you that story. It gives you the opportunity to build something. It gives you the opportunity to own something in another person's uh, vision. So I used to tell people that you don't have to be a founder to own something. You don't have to be an executive director to own something. <laughs> you can own a vision in another person's vision. You can own a mission in another person's mission. Exactly. You can own a story in another person's story. There are, so, there are some stories that I've owned and I wasn't the founder because exactly. i was part of that movement and that process and, uh, and also taking ownership of that story exactly and making it your own exactly and that's what volunteering does basically because it's you you know it's exactly. you it's obviously you in that moment in that you know mission in that work all of those experiences belongs to you nobody will take it away from you um so yeah if we if we approach volunteering with that uh you know want to give back want to contribute to something bigger um, it comes to us, you know, in Ripple event. In fact, sometimes I feel like we are selfish when we give to people. <laughs> the people who give to people are the most even selfish people because they, they get this in tenfold at times. You know what? One thing I've noticed, and I want people who are listening to take into, you know, their mind is to realize how you tell every you answer every question with a storytelling narrative approach because that's very important because that, that's something that many people have not developed that for example if you went into an interview and they asked you that what did you do here it is more about the stories you tell and how you can for example they are looking for a certain skill set but it's not necessarily that you did xyz but it's about the story you tell and how that portrays the skill set or whatever detail isn't because i like how you know you go into the details of documenting your stories remembering how they affect you and being able to produce them in when you are being asked a question i think that it's a very incredible skill that most people don't don't have so i just wanted to comment on that but let's move to your leadership initiative and how that started yeah so um 
in in 2017 i was working in a factory <laughs> so i was working in a palm kernel factory so you see me working in a factory you know pushing palm kernel you know crushing palm kernel and all and um, um i was in the community called olambe matogun community then i was working in that factory as a factory worker doubled as the account as the account manager so i would take record and i would do the factory work as well um so yeah and as i was doing that work it, it was a very very hard kind of physical physical kind of work and um whenever i walk in my streets you know i i speak to children you know i speak to kids you know whenever i'm walking in the streets going to the factory you see me stop over I'll speak to kids, you know, people would ask me questions, you know, children would even tell me their challenges and worries and problems and how they are struggling. Sometimes the last money that I've gotten, I'll even give it to them, basically. Um, and, you know, I was seeing challenges, I was seeing problems, and they reflected the challenges I was also facing growing up, basically. Uh, you know, the lack of access to, you know, support, to guidance, to education, uh, the lack of access to, like, you know, even the career I want to do, nobody to ask questions, you know. It, it, it was it was challenging and every day i see this in the streets basically it's talking to these kids and i thought ahmed if you don't do something now uh you know i don't know when i'll be able to do something so at that point or at that particular moment i decided to like start an ngo um, one based on my own experiences based on my own story uh based on access to opportunities you know um and education and I believe that it could be the same, you know, for many, many other children in rural and south communities. Uh, so we went to the school, one of the schools that these children were going to is a public school um, in a depleted building. The buildings were terrible. <laughs> um, you know, it was like a really, really cold rural school and majority of the students in that community were going to the school. So we went in, you know, I went in, I could recall going in with my shirt and one trouser and all, and I was like, Okay, um, we had this plan, you know, we want to run this program, we want to have a career and leadership session uh, with the children, just to speak to them, share our own journey, share our own stories, um, you know, um, get them to ask questions, you know, about their career, about their life. And, um, you know, they accepted, we submitted letters, they accepted our letters, and I could recall myself, my cousin, and a friend. Uh, we went, we were, I and my cousin were the speaker. My uh, friend was the MC, uh, the master of ceremony, and we had the event on that day. You know, I could recall I had saved like about, I think it's even about less than five to ten, ten dollars um, that I have saved in my in my, <laughs> and I brought out those money to buy fuel for the training. I uh, so that we can we can have electricity. <laughs> um, I also got. Uh, you know, I, I had a speaker, I got everything, I spoke to like a photographer, I'm like, I don't have money, I'm just starting for the first time, you know, would you be willing to take this small amount from me? And then he accepted. And then we had this program, you know, this career, you know, day program, and it was really, really amazing. You know, children had loads of questions. And as if that they've never had such opportunity before to actually, you know, we had this talk and they were like, yes, this is somebody that understands me. This is somebody that I've been wanting to hear from. And, you know, my parents do not understand what I wanted to do, you know. And then we started seeing problems, we started seeing challenges, we started seeing that it's beyond one of support. And then that's how the NGO kick started, from one school to another school to another school. The challenges were piling up, we're seeing the challenges. Children wanted to solve their own problems. They wanted a platform to solve their own problem. And we started developing programs to actually solve those challenges and to solve those problems. And, you know, we started the likes of Ski to Rural Bootcamp, 
where children in rural communities come together to create solutions to their own problems, to their own challenges. We introduce them to design thinking. Um, and, you know, they watch videos, they see what the future of work would look like, and they start thinking, you know, sometimes it's the first time some of those children are seeing the projector. You know, this first time I'm seeing like, oh, this is, so this kind of world exists outside our community, you know, and they started creating solutions. We, we asked them, we created mobile clinics from our boot camp, drainage system, mechanized farms. And these are children in rural communities that people feel that they cannot create anything, that they don't have the capacity. I could even recall somebody was challenging me. Do you think that these children will be able to create this thing? Do you think it's not going to be higher, you know, for their level? And I'm like, they understand. Children naturally are curious. They are creative. They know what they want. They know, just give them the resources and see how they are going to create things. And then through that experiential learning with support from mentors and our volunteers, they were creating solutions built on the skills. And I could recall now one who say, oh, after the bootcamp, I feel like I'm now a problem solver. I feel like I'm this. I feel like I'm that. You know, they started saying things. And I'm like, there's just that joy that you see from children, you know, being able to, like, think about solutions, think about solutions from their, from, from in their communities. And uh, from there, you know, the organization has grown. You know, we've had, like, national, we've built us, like, we've created this national program. We are now in, like, more than three to four, five, six states in Nigeria. Uh, we've even had the training for um, refugees in Malawi. Uh, like we've we've grown to be like a um, that program that is uh, self not really self sustainable, edging towards that. You know, in terms of volunteers, we've had like from three of us, we now have over hundred volunteers in you know more than six states in Nigeria, and it's 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 joyful to see that people are leading the movement. You know, um, so um, and one one of the things that I saw during those moments of engaging these children is that one of intervention is not enough. You need to constantly support children because exactly. at the end of the boot camp, we noticed that, uh, you know, children want to get into university. There was no money. That was a challenge. Okay, now we've inspired these kids. Now they want to solve problems. Now they want to create things. Some of them even started their own initiative. But they need to get into university if you really want to change their circumstances. Or even if they need to pay their school fees when they, were, they are in secondary school. So those challenges started coming up. Uh, so, uh, I, we created like a kind of scholarship funds where we matched them with somebody to sponsor them, you know, to stay in school or to even get into like uni, you know, sometimes I would just go ahead to do fundraising on social media just to raise money for some of them to get in. Um, and you know, it's, it's so amazing to see how, you know, two of them or three of them now in the uni and, uh, and that's, that's the joy, you know, it's a journey, it's a process, you know, one is even writing their, uh, undergraduate thesis now. And, you know, the, the young person is working on polio. And I'm like, and when I asked her, you know, why are you working on polio? And she started talking. I'm just, I was just so happy. This is a young person we met in 2018. 2018 to 2022. And then we've been supporting her. Uh, we've, she, she has been on our scholarship as uh, since her first year in uni. So again, um, for me, I believe that uh, change is, uh, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be big. Uh, they are the small steps that we take and, uh, you know, they, it's just by being a piece in the, in the puzzle of a child that we don't know. You know, when you look at the jigsaw puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle is connected with different pieces coming together to form one, a picture. And we don't have to be everything. All we need to do is to be a piece of that puzzle. And for me, the piece is that helping children to develop the skills that helps them solve their problem, providing that scholarship. Uh, for some people, it could be their teachers teaching them in school. That's the piece of the puzzle, basically. 
for some people it could be the support that they get from their parents that's the piece of the puzzle uh for some people it could be you know different people coming together to play a piece in the puzzle and that's how we can help a child to change their circumstances basically and that's what education should be driven at and to complete that piece we should also understand that the child is also important because if you know the child is not committed to learn or committed to want to grow or they are never ready there's no intervention you can give nothing would change and nothing would happen um so for me i've learned a lot in that process and in that journey and uh, my dream is to see uh, you know children you know change their circumstances they've inherited um i've um, you know spoken in places i've spoken in conferences um, i've spoken in places like unesco um you know at the african university summit you know spoken in different you know um you know i've studied i studied in edinburgh they can do the same and that's the dream you know it's helping children change their circumstances and that will not happen in a day it takes a bit of time uh, to help them change their circumstances and i believe education uh, would offer that pathway so most people want to start initiatives and for them the big barrier is money um and that, that is a reality. I am a founder myself. I started a lot of initiatives. And it's always difficult to do things. I mean, you are going to get stuck and all of that. If somebody is someone who likes to create, who likes to start initiatives, and it's in that place where, although they have that passion, sometimes they may even have some skill set, but they don't have access to funding, what would you say to them? Um, I, I think, um, uh, aside from like, we would address this later in terms of like, you know, the, the negative adults culture and, uh, the, the older people who have decided not to invest in young people and the negative philanthropy, you know, happening in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, most specifically with countries like Nigeria and some other parts of, 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 of the continent. Um, while I will not focus on that aspect, I would really love to talk about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, we ourselves as young people um, and how we can you know build our initiative even without or with limited resources um, and one thing i would love to say uh, there's a quote that i learned when i was starting my ngo then and you know it's really stayed with me uh, it's like i don't buy what i can rent i don't rent what i can borrow and i don't borrow what i can get for free if i have the right type of network you know, I don't buy what I can rent. Yeah, so uh, that, that quote really stuck with me, you know, and it has really helped me with, like, you know, the way I look at mobilizing resources, especially domestic resources, uh, to actually get things done. And it's like, I don't buy what I can rent. I don't rent what I can borrow. And I don't borrow what I can get for free if I have the right type of network. Uh, so, you know, within within our network, within, uh, you know, your own people, you know, you could... Uh, literally, I could recall when we started there, you know, I would look within my network, you know, who, is, who can help us develop a website, who can help us, you know, um, you know, um, take pictures for free, you know, who can, you know, within my network. And I also, I'm also looking at what can I also give them, right, in return in terms of contribution, you know, so, um, you know, giving them the platform to also contribute to something bigger and to something greater. So sometimes you need to like your partnership skills, your networking skills, you know, has to be like on a game. I was always, I, I always go to programs. I'll go to programs. When people say, well, who wants to talk about their work? I'll raise up my hand and then share to talk about my work because I know there's a potential sponsor in that room and in that place, you know, looking out for me. And a sponsor doesn't have to give you money. It could be resources. It could be time. It could be their skills. It could be, you know, anything. 
Um, so during those moments, you know, when I think about, you know, when I want to run project, I'm like, where's the money, you know? I'll look at, oh, the schools. Oh, for example, maybe the school have a hall. Why do I have need to, why do I need to rent a hall? When the school have a hall, you know, maybe they have like a classroom that can, you know, that we can use, you know? If they have a classroom, why do I have to go get somewhere else? So that cost is gone. <laughs> um, so I, like, that cost is gone already. I don't need to look at that. Oh. Then I ask the school, do you have guys, do you guys have projector? Do you have this? You know, if they don't have this, I'm like, okay, who can I talk to in my, you know, within my network? And I pitch to them, you know, this is what I'm running. This is what I'm doing. You know, please, can you loan us your projector? Basically, you know, is it that they give it for free? You know, some will end up giving, giving it for free by the time you pitch, you know, the whole idea, the whole, you know, so you, you also need to learn how to like present your ideas, basically. And, um, you know, in the beginning, you have to, like, pull those resources together, basically. And then the facilitator sometimes comes from my friends. They come from people that I meet in events, that I meet in network, and they are willing to give, you know, this for free. And because they know I will do the same for them. Uh, the reason why people will give their blood and sweats and their money to you is because they know you will do the same for them. And during those moments of growing, during those growing years, I'm always showing up for people. And the truth is that uh, sometimes sustainability is not all about money. Sustainability is in relationship building. It's the way we build relationship, the way we even lead the people who are working with us. Um, sometimes it's when your volunteer has a bad day and they come to you and they say, hey, I, I'm having a bad day and you listen to them. And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. You know, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Those small things, those little things is how people would say that Ahmed cares for me. He doesn't just care about the work or about the initiative. And then, you know, connecting them to opportunities, giving them the platform to need, taking the back seat. So I could recall where we even started and started having volunteers. I would be like, volunteers should take topics in our programs and speak. So because people want to be, be at the forefront, they want to like, yeah, they want to speak it today, you know, and they want to share. So all of those experiences, you know, I, I, I just think about and those little things translate into things, you know, into, you know, tangible things like money. They'll be the one to go and campaign. They'll be the one to go and speak to other people. They'll be the one to go and, you know, and then, you know, it started pulling together little by little. So what we did was that, uh, you know, we used what we have in the beginning. We might not have money, but we would use like the little resources we can have. We would, we would if you can borrow, we'll borrow instead of buying. Um, until we started like, you know, uh, building my network. Because um, one thing that I've noticed is that uh, the builder is as important as the builder. The builder cannot grow the building cannot go without the builder. Um, so for me, it was important to join platforms and be part of programs. Um, and that was why I started applying for opportunities. Because I knew if I'm part of a program, it's going to translate into the work that I do in my nonprofits. Uh, so I needed to be part of program to build my skills. Because there are some funding that you get because you're a member of a particular yeah, platform yeah. and programs. It will not happen in silos. Never would it happen. Or you would probably get a recognition somewhere or somebody would meet you and connect you to something somewhere. Um, so being a member of those platforms for me created a pathway for me basically um, to assess internal resources and internal skills and internal knowledge to actually grow my non-profit. And as I was growing, the non-profit was also growing on the other side and on the other end. And it's also okay to come to the realization that uh, at the point you also need to work. 
uh, that uh, it doesn't have to be the NGO all the time. Maybe you need to work to keep yourself sane, because if not, uh, you would you would you know you would just be frustrated and you won't be able to give. Uh, so for me, at some point, I needed to work. You know, I needed to get into you know um, I applied as a regional manager. Uh, with an organization peace first that was in 2019 you know i was working leading the work in sub-saharan africa building the knowledge earning and there's no way you're earning that it wasn't translating to what you're doing in your ngo i was telling somebody i said i'll be the i'll always be a do not until i die for the non-profit uh because as i continue to grow as i continue to earn um you know even if the ngo becomes self-sustaining i'll still be contributing because it's a mission it's a vision it's it's an there's an idea what i wanted to create you know, there's a world I wanted to see where children in the South communities can change their circumstances and all. So um, it comes to the realization to know that uh, at a point, you might probably need to work somewhere else. Um, and when you're working somewhere else, you're not just, you're working there, you're not just making money, but you're building skills that translate into your non-profit. <laughs> you know, and then you give other people the opportunity to lead, other people the platform to lead. And then you start positioning yourself and growing, you know, your NGO to be funding cap. Like you build it to the extent where you can start attracting external funding. And that is a journey. It's a process. It takes time. It's also about telling your stories, you know, constantly telling your stories, you know, putting it on social media. Some of the support we've gotten were because I was telling stories on social media. Some of the greatest fundraising we've gotten were the result of telling stories on social media. So again, transformation will not happen in our little silos. You know, transformation happens you know when we tell the stories when we share the stories of our work and um, i understand some people will be like oh i'm an introvert and i don't like putting things out there um i think um there are gains and wins to things and i think uh, one of the things social media does you you can you you can decide to be not to be the center of the story and others can be the center of the story but you share and you're behind the camera basically uh, so even if you can tell stories in such a way that it's appealing to the kind of personality you have and the kind of person you have, basically, uh, like for me, I want to be uh, like, I, I, like, I won't hide my face, basically. So I would want to put myself out there because that's who I am, basically. But for some people, they are not that way. So I don't want to like talk as if I'm incentivizing extroverts, basically, to run initiative or to run an NGO. Uh, but again, we can look at balance in both ways and then, you know, uh, so for me, it's, it's more or less like, you know, in the beginning, what resources can I get for free? Um, and, uh, you know, how can I leverage, you know, domestic resources within my community? Uh, secondly, um, joining platforms, programs that can catalyze your growth, and then it translates to your nonprofit. And thirdly, it's uh, telling the, the power of story to, you know, generate resources funding and to even get you in the room to speak because. You need rooms. You need to be in rooms to speak, you know. Uh, and and sometimes this, those 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 opportunity, you know, catalyzes and uh, brings something back to like your your nonprofits. And that's why the builder is as important as the building. I, I you said a lot um, within this small space, but now let's talk about education, which is something that you're very passionate about. Obviously, the work in the leadership center leads directly to education. And now you're working with refugee education. Um, when people talk about refugees, um, I don't know if people understand that there are refugees in Africa right now who are going through a lot of difficulties. So I want you to shed light on the refugee situation in Africa and the kind of difficulty that people who 
are who don't have the spotlight on themselves most of the time are going through a lot of difficulty they are being displaced their families um, have been disconnected from them and they are having to live in slums and difficult conditions and what is the role of like you know organizations like refugee education uk doing but basically tell me about the refugee situation in africa and across the world and what why it's very important that those people have the best education possible um, um i mean it's um uh it's 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 uh this is a political subject basically uh, because the term refugee itself is, is very, very political, you know, in terms of like, you know, the journey, the movements and how countries even treat refugees, you know, based on where they are coming from and based on who they are. And uh, when you look at the word um, refugees itself, you know, it's uh, it's um, based on like, uh, you know, you're, you're a refugee um, when you are being probably being persecuted in your country and you, you know, leave because it's... it's uh, is grounded on the basis of fear. You can't live in a country anymore. Then you need to take a journey, basically, to leave your country. Uh, for some people, it could be on the basis of religion. Uh, it could be on the basis of political affiliation. Uh, it could be on the basis of, um, um, you know, uh, I've talked about persecution, religion, uh, political affiliation. Um, um, so uh, it could also be on on race, basically. It could be on your race and and how. Um, so, uh, those people f- fly flee from their country uh, to actually seek refuge in another country, basically, and they take one of the most, um, you know, the journey is not easy, you know, you move from one country to another, like different things that's happened in that journey, you know, you're traumatized by those experiences, you know, in the boat, you know, you know, you know, going from one country to another, maybe even living in the camp, having to leave the camp to journey somewhere else. So um, the journey itself, it's, it's hard. Um, and um, what then up, you know, those uh, um, young people who have been through that process to aspire for a better future, it's education. Uh, because education uh, will not just only allow them, you know, aspire for a better future. It's allow them to even uh, reconstruct, you know, the, their own countries, transform themselves and transform their family. And that's the, that's the, what refugee education believes in, you know, that hope that um, refugees would, you know, who, who had had those experiences could change, you know, things for themselves. You know, they could have, you know, that sense of hope that the future would be better. Because sometimes when you go through that journey, sometimes you lose that hope, you know. So, uh, but with the kind of support you get, you know, with the kind of, you know, um, help you get, because sometimes you've, you've literally lost everything. You know, you've lost connection with your family, you've lost connection with home. Um, you need to rebuild, you know, a new, a new society, a new, a new hope for the future, um, and uh, education does that. Um, because, for example, I I work with refugees in Uganda, even before I started working with refugees, Education UK, and uh, when we did that, so many of those refugees were coming from Sudan and Somalia and some other countries, Rwanda. Some of them lost their certificates already, and they couldn't even access higher education. And you understand that if you don't have access to higher education, there's also certain certification. There's no way you can even get the jobs. There's no way you can get the good jobs. There's no way you can even, you know, integrate easily. Um, you would rather do, there's no way you can earn. Um, so, and higher education offers that pathway. So, uh, for, for us, is that, uh, you know, we need to change that landscape uh, to understand that uh, refugees, they have life even before they fly or they flee. 
that they are living, they have life, and uh, they uh, have a world they were living before, and that life needs to be recognized. Uh, uh, we need to remove the barriers that deny access, basically. Uh, you can't say somebody who upload their certificate to provide a certificate, for God's sake. You need to recognize that it's a journey for them. It's different. So there's a need to create a program that's, you know, uh, a bridging program that allow easy access, you know, to education, that allow easy pathway to education. And it's when we start recognizing this journey and recognizing these challenges, that's when we can change things. You know, sometimes I'm always surprised, you know, when government would, you know, just come up with policies, you know. Sometimes, you know, because they don't even have language skills, you know, it's difficult to even communicate. Uh, because some refugees who are coming from like maybe Middle East, Afghan, you know, South Sudan, some countries where they don't even speak English or English is not the, you know, first um, language or English wasn't the language of instruction. You know, for example, those refugees who come into the UK, they struggle. Even the ones I work with together, they struggle. Um, so what I, what we do at Refugee Education UK is to like, you know, um, we have different programs. So for example, we connect them to mentors, you know, who provide educational support once in every week for an hour. And because sometimes refugees also deal with isolation, you know, they, they don't know who to talk to, uh, mentoring help them to cope with like this kind of isolation because they get to meet somebody once in every week, you know, who's kind of support them with their homework if they're already in college, you know, who help them develop their language skills, you know, who provide that additional support. And, you know, and that's, you know, really, really help them, you know, it safeguard them from like other harm, basically. It helps their mental health as well. And we also have like a well-being program. So, for example, it's not enough to just put a refugee in school. <laughs> because the story is still there, you know, the trauma and everything is still there. The challenges are still there, <laughs> even when you've put them in school. So, um, and we've seen, you know, you know, people, you know, they're like, uh, I'm, I'm not sleeping, you know. Some will not sleep and then they come to school the next morning or they decide not to even come to school at all. Um, so we have like a, um, and there are some other issues that they might go through like homelessness because, um, you know, sometimes the governments don't recognize that, uh, you know, when you're, you're like uh, uh, 18, I think you start caring for yourself and there are some certain, you know, you leave care, they call it care leavers. Once you're 18, you leave care, you know, uh, that's, I'm, I'm talking based on the UK refugees now, you know, I'm not, I've moved from Sub-Saharan mm -hmm, Africa, mm -hmm. you know, they call them because it's a different <laughs> dynamics in Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, it's a different <laughs> dynamics entirely. Um, so they call them care leavers and, uh, you know, sometimes you have to fill in things for yourself. You have to like, you know, your home application, but people who don't understand how to fill this application, right? And you give them papers to fill. You know, sometimes you know these challenges and you're still, you know, you're still, you know that these are challenges, that they won't be able to complete this form and then they give them notice to move away from their homes and then all of a sudden somebody becomes homeless because they can't complete the form. And then it affects their well-being, it affects their opportunity to concentrate in school, they stop going to college. So at Refugee Education UK, we also have like a well-being, you know, um, team that's all that space for young people. You know to share and to allow them to like you know uh take uh, actions for themselves right you know find a way to like advocate for them to like oh you know this is where you can apply to get a home this is what you can do this is what you can do you know all that space for them all that space for them to share all that space for them to be able to solve those problems and solve those challenges so so that they can stay in education and we now have an educational progression team who provides an educational advice because for a young person who have come into the UK, who don't understand how the UK education system works, 
we don't even know the document to provide or we don't even know how they can be enrolled into school it becomes a challenge and again this are the role of the local authority or the role of the social worker but sometimes you know when you have limited support coming into the country even as an asylum seeker because the benefit you get as an asylum seeker is different from the benefit you get as a refugee even sometimes as an asylum seeker for the first six months you might not be able to access education in the uk until after the first six months so there's like a lot of policies around this complications yeah so yeah. so without those educational advice yeah. Yeah. sometimes they just come i don't even know where to apply to college i don't even know where to go i don't even know you know they don't know and with limited language uh, opportunities it becomes more complicated so we have like a educational progression team who provides this advice you know in for on further education where ca college colleges can i go how can i progress you know i want to do this course what pathways can i take i want to get into uni what pathways can i take to get into uni um and all of this still fund and affect refugees to aspire for a better future because if you don't have access to the necessary certification and the necessary education how do you want to get a good job and change your circumstance talk less of reconstructing your country so let's come back home and let's talk about it um the education state in africa itself you have you know gone to conferences listened to a lot of people speak what do you think is i mean when you narrow it to that one thing it's much more difficult but i still want to really push it there one thing that really has the capacity to transform education in africa um i i think i think um we skill based education um um i think skill skill based education and uh, a purpose driven education um and i i'm saying skills and purpose driven because mm -hmm. uh, it's not enough to give people skills right you know you want to you want to use skills to change something um so what are our needs you know as a nation and how are those needs and aspirations mm -hmm. of the nation you know, how can we translate our national objectives into like you know our educational system to achieve those national objectives you know to achieve you know those goals and aspiration of our country and of our nation and then ensuring that some of these goals you know aligns with the 21st century aligns with the future of work aligns with the work of now education that are relevant towards our current society you know and then embedding some of these things in some of the subjects that our children are learning and running so overall in the curriculum to ensure that the curriculum aligns with what is happening today children already knows what is happening today children if you give them phones and digital technology they can operate it even without anybody teaching them so we need to bring it back to like you know the 21st century learning skill-based learning and the purpose-driven education those three key components you know would drive you know educational you know uh, uh, you know the, the challenges that we are facing as a nation and um you know why we are addressing those skill gap you know uh, while i'm talking about skill based i'm not talking about just cognitive based i'm also talking about vocational learning uh because we've actually underrated and mm -hmm. undermined the power of vocational learning in our you know school system not everybody wants to go to the university it's clear as that some people will work in vocations that will drive change and that will enable some certain profession to be able to do their work everybody in the society have different roles that they can play that drive towards you know you know uh you know change in the society um so our education should be created in such of that way that reflect you know the, the complexity and dynamics of the 21st century um and um those things will not happen without all other aspects uh because uh um 
um, Emilene Durkheim, a renowned sociologist of, edu sociologi sociologist of education, said, uh, he said, education cannot stand on its own. Um, all other sectors contribute to education. If there is no political will, who would fund education? Or who would fund the skill-based learning we are talking about? Or who would work to overhaul the curriculum? So number one, the political will has to be there. And all of this political will then would translate into how education is being led and run. I mean, I can do all the training in this world, I can do everything, but to create a massive change in education, right? I mean, it's on a low scale that I'm doing these things. But to create those massive change in education, government needs to be involved. And they need to, like, you know, think about complementary pathways to ensure that children develop the necessary skills that are needed for the future of work and for the workforce. And that involves, you know, upskilling teachers to ensure that they can deliver some of these learning outcomes. So it's not like education cannot be seen as an embryo, you know, or as a something on its own. It has to, you know, it has to be... It, fit into a system. Yeah, like there's a connection. Fit into a system. You know, so number one, the political will. You know, the family has a role to play. Family needs to know that they are, you know, the, the, the bedrock of any society is the family. And our children will later become parents. The lack of education of our children means that we have parents, you know, who will not have education. Even the basic education that is needed to succeed. And when they don't have that education, it means that uh, education mobility leads to social mobility. Mm -hmm. Especially for children in rural and mm -hmm. underserved communities who lack resources already or who whose circumstances have, have been affected by birth or at birth already. Um, so to reduce that intergenerational transfer of poverty and to create an upward social mobility, we need to address that as well, basically. That's one key component of a society. Mass media plays a role in educating a child. The radio programs we used to have in the past, where children can learn from. We need to bring all of those programs back and then create a conscious learning where children can learn about their environment and the problems and challenges that they are facing within their environment. Religious institutions, as much as we say that religious institutions, some people are critical of it, they have a role to play. So again, it's, it's, it's everybody coming together. And, you know, like I said, it's a piece of a jigsaw puzzle. And everybody coming together to play their own role, you know, to drive, you know, this, you know, uh, um, self-driven, ethical driven you know leaders would you know change the world and you know create you know that um, africa that is driven by by you know skills technology innovation and and all but again let me tell you that these things i've stated as well they are not enough without the economic strong economic policies <laughs> because sometimes we talk about education we don't talk about economic policies we don't talk about because it's the economy that funds education as well. Mm -hmm. And if the economy grows in such a way that it incentivizes different professions, people would not say that I want to go into uni. If I know that I can work as a carpenter, you know, create tools and create, you know, furnitures that are 21st century driven, um, um, and I know I will earn a decent income. I won't worry not to be a capital because that's what I want to do. But that's what I love. 
<laughs> you know, and I've seen that happen in you know in countries basically where people don't once you already have a level once people have higher education uh, have secondary education that's enough for some people. If you want to be at the other level, you want to work in some certain sector, go to the university. It's choice, but people are not given that choices because of the kind of incentivity in the society. And the way the society have incentivized or have seen some certain professions. So while we are looking at all of these components, we need to think about what are the recognition of some of these professions, especially vocational professions. Because you see that when you are in a vocational school, they said you are you are the most dullest person in the world. That's why you're going to a vocational school. That shouldn't be the case. So we need to address those identity policies. So actually change the narratives and every every other thing. Yeah, so I think that one of the things we're saying, like we need to tell the stories of successful vocational um, people who've gone through vocational training, you know, people who have vocational skills. We should highlight their stories, tell their stories, show that they are successful people who have gone through that line and that catapults the people who are in school to, you know, choose that option because I think that it starts from there. People are not comfortable with choosing that option because they don't think that that option is sustainable, that option is respectable. And we can do that through that. I, I think you have said a lot of things here um, that really are inspiring. And this is the very first time that we are talking about some of these issues, like, you know, highlighting refugees and all of that. So it's a very brilliant addition to the conversation we had on the podcast. Now, before we leave, you've written some books. Do you want to tell us about your books you've written? And what inspired you to write the books? And then tell us where people can buy the books. Um, that's, that's what I want to leave with. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about that. Um, I think the first one is um, The Africa I Dream to See. And um, The Africa I Dream to See is more of an aspirational African book. And some of these things I've mentioned here, yeah, you may probably come across them. It's like my aspiration for education, my aspiration for like, you know, how I would say the world of education in, on the continent, basically. And um, it's driven by my own story, it's driven by my own journey, and how I believe that, you know, the African child is creative, is intuitive, they can create things, they can make things happen. Actually, the people who solve those problems and the challenges we face on the continent are those children. And some of those children are located maybe in the slum, but because they don't have the opportunities and resources, you know, they don't have the access to the, to, the, to, to, to tools um, to actually create those things, you know, it, it will not happen. And I could recall saying in the book that, the future cities would not be in London or somewhere in Hong Kong or somewhere in, uh, you know, in, in Japan, Tokyo, or somewhere in Abu, in Dubai or Abu Dhabi, you know, in, in United Arab Emirates. Uh, the future cities would be in this slum, um, you know, the places like Makoko, places like, like um, Kibera in Kenya, uh, you know, all of these, uh, you know, um, storms that we've, you know, we've looked down. Those are the places where the future of the cities would be. And the only place where the only way we can make those places livable, um, and make those place, places where people want to stay and they want to migrate, um, is when you know we provide adequate education, tools, and resources and opportunities, um, you know, for those children to enhance their potential. Um, so again, uh, that was the book. It was driven from that angle. It was driven from the fact that uh, you know we can, we we can be part of our solution. So. Um, and, you know, nobody would change it for us. Like, Africa will be changed by our own people with our own resources. You know, we wouldn't wait for external resources to change things. And until we start looking at that, you know, we, that's when we can create a change. So it's more of an like aspirational kind of book. And it can be found on, on Amazon. Um, 
and uh, the other one is five years ten lessons like a recent book my my recent i'm yeah. talking about my recent one now and that's the first one so my recent one is five years ten lessons life taught me and uh five years is uh is my journey as a change maker you know my cries my worries my wins you know all of these things i'm sharing here basically when i started my ngo uh, i think it's more detailed there like you know what happened you know what changed within five years for me basically when i started you know non-profit so when i've decided to like see i want to fully work in this sector and i want to give my all to the sector basically and you know the, the challenges that comes with that without earning you know when you're not even earning an income for like maybe three four years you know what happens uh you know what, what are the cries or the worries you know uh and how did i cope you know and deal with those challenges and those worries and uh you know and you know up and where i am today currently i'm not still where I, I wanted to be basically but i think i'm still a work in progress i'm in the journey um so if you want to work with me in that journey i think five years ten lessons life to me is a book where you know um, um outlines the challenges of a young change maker or a young social entrepreneur in in, uh, in nigeria or on the continent um so it's um yeah it's also on amazon and it's also on roving heights so roving heights is like a kind of nigerian platform you know a store that where wherever you live in nigeria you can get it you can like roving heights will deliver to you wherever um so it's, it's also on roving heights and yeah i mean those are the, the two books and i'm i'm working on other other manuscripts soon and um i hope i have the strength to write and complete them <laughs> um and they are they are more on on um, rewriting the narratives of africa and how africa is portrayed in the in the global so-called global north uh, what does it mean as an african t- to live in diaspora uh how do people perceive the continent you know in diaspora what do people see you when they feel like you're black and you know you speak english and say oh you speak so well uh, which is condescending um so addressing those key issues and how our media tell the stories as well you know and how we need to rewrite and take the narrative take over the narrative in the media um uh, to write about you know wh- what is africa itself who, who is even writing about africa uh you know who is telling our stories uh so all of those kind of uh, challenges will be addressed through this book using you know theories in africanization you are a very inspirational story you are a very inspirational person you have a very inspirational um story we have a lot of people that came from your backgrounds. Maybe they're not listening to the podcast, but if there's somebody who wants to start from where you are, maybe they are even more privileged or they have an opportunity that you have not had growing up. What is your story to the young African who is struggling, the young African who is ambitious and purposeful and is trying to cause change? What do you want to tell that person right now? Um, um, what I would say is like, don't wait for permission from anybody, uh, to do what you're supposed to do, um, and to be at the forefront of leading change and to cause good troubles. Um, we, yeah, we, um, sometimes we need to go all out and, you know, and, you know, just go all out to creating what we want. And as we go all out, we learn through the process, we learn through the journey, we learn through by making mistakes, we build allies along the line. Uh, we build friends, we build network, we build long-time friends and supporters. Um, you know, we build community. Life itself is a journey. Um, it doesn't end. It's an infinite game. Uh, it doesn't end. You know, there, there are no winners or losers in life, in the game of life. Um, so, uh, and for me, you know, it's it's uh, being in that journey, living in that moment, living in that process. Um, so if you think you want to do anything, you want to create anything, you identify an issue, you know, go all out and and and. and create something you know join programs you know you know volunteer 
And uh, if you think you 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 haven't find something you're passionate about, or you haven't find something in particular why, that itself is a journey. That itself is a why on its own. <laughs> you know the why of why. Uh, it's more or less like uh, you know you don't have a why yet, but you're looking for it. That's a why. <laughs> Uh, and that's okay. That's fine. So um, it's it's fine if you don't find it yet because um, um, you know it's 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 not a marathon. Uh, it's not a race. It's not a sprint. Rather, it's you know it's a journey. You know, you you learn along the journey. You learn along the line. You meet people along the line, and then you find a why along the line. So and if you don't find it at all, that alone itself is a purpose. Um, so I feel like you know don't don't wait for for permission. Uh, but if you need to. If, if you need to hear from somebody, now I'm telling you, uh, you know, um, go for it and, and, and go all out to, to achieve what you want to achieve and learn through the process and um, document, document those journey and processes as well. And, and have a friend along the line where you can, you can always pour out to and, and they can also support you as you, as you grow. Yeah. So we've had a very inspiring, thrilling conversation with the founder of Coyote Alabi leadership and career initiative for the last five years this young man has moved from the factory floor and has led change has gone to the uk to study has won several awards has impacted the lives of hundreds probably thousands of people and here he was in the change africa with us sharing his story and his thoughts around education volunteerism refugeeism and how we can transform the continent it has been an awesome um opportunity and I will say honored to have you, Ahmed, on the podcast. Thank you for honoring the invitation. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to share. It's always a pleasure. Okay. Thank you very much.